There's a reason we fear the dark. Listen to your instincts. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. Going on walks at night was always a relaxing, cathartic, and peaceful experience for me. Everything from the sounds of the crickets to the chills of the cool night wind helped cure the stressful days that I often went through. I'm a warehouse employee for a steel mill. Working around metal and hot furnaces wasn't exactly the most relaxing job out there. I would come home all five days a week dripping in perspiration with the smell of smoke and metallic substances engulfing me as if they were flames around a burning log. Therefore, these nightly walks were sort of a cure to all that. It was a way to improve my quality of life. I don't know what I would do without them. But on this night though, something had felt off. Things were quieter than usual. I live in a pretty decent neighborhood. It was no gated community or anything, but I felt safe in the area. There wasn't much crime, and in the rare times that there was, it was usually simple break-ins or theft. No murder, drug cartels, or anything like that. But despite all of that, I had my guard up tonight. I even picked up a girthy stick that I had found laying next to the sidewalk just in case. Step by step, I marched down the streets, the wind howling as I guided myself through the dimly lit area. One car ended up driving by me. It was a smaller red sedan with a few scratches on the side. I didn't quite get a good look at the driver because of the light reflection, but something about the car felt eerie as it passed by, like it just came out of nowhere. Huh. I huffed to myself as I gripped my arbitrary melee weapon. When I set my sights upon the area behind me, only the thick darkness of the night stared back. I could make out the figure of an owl perched on a tall-looking pine tree, but it wasn't moving or hooting. It stood as still as a block of cement, almost as if it was watching me. I couldn't make out any specific features of the owl, just the general silhouette of the creature as it stared me down like I was a prey item. Now, this wasn't the scariest thing in the world, but it was slightly unsettling. I involuntarily gripped my stick a little bit more forcefully as I returned the owl's stomach-churning gaze. The critter didn't move in the slightest, even as I stared back. It was still appearing as if it were taxidermied. The fact that it didn't even flinch made it seem much more strange. Sinister, if you will. But eventually, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't stare at the thing forever, and I simply turned around to keep walking. I wasn't going to let my night be ruined by just one little out-of-place event. Even though I had moved on, the encounter still sat in the back of my mind as I pressed on. I just thought that it would make some good material for a joke at work tomorrow. My coworkers were pretty big fans of comedic relief during the busy hours, especially when they're constantly on high alert to prevent getting chopped up by huge mechanical blades or getting melted by liquid scrap metal. After pressing on through the roads for a few more minutes, I had arrived at the neighborhood park. The age of the structures were becoming pretty obvious as the years came and went. The supports of the swing sets were rusting. The wood chips were more scattered than twigs in a forest. Many slides appeared as if they were going to turn you into a human connect foreboard, 
with all the pieces of sharp plastic sticking out prominently like small mountains. I had come to this park often as a child. I even felt a small wave of nostalgia rush over me the closer to the park that I got. It was like taking a trip down memory lane. As I made my way past the basketball court and towards the opposite end of the park, I could hear an unfamiliar voice call out my name. Carl. I stopped dead in my tracks as my eyes went wide like whirlpools. The voice in question was that of a boy, a young boy. Just from the sound alone, I could predict that he was no more than 10 years old. I didn't have a family or any young children in my life that I knew of. Not ones that knew my name anyway. Hello? I called back into the night, still spotting absolutely nothing or no one around me. I see you, Carl. The young and unseen boy called out again. His tone became much more forceful. It was at this point that I had felt my adrenaline and begin to kick in. Everything around me began to slow down, while the opposite happened to my mind and instincts. My alertness shot up like an express elevator, as I felt my hands slowly shift into fists. It seemed like a bit much for what I thought was a little boy, but when you feel threatened, your instincts don't discriminate. Shouldn't you be at home, kid? I called out once again with no response or change in scenery. I kept still and I stood my ground, looking past bushes, trees, and the cars parked in driveways from where this boy could be. Joke's over. It's past your bedtime. I pronounced, beginning to become frustrated. But I knew in the back of my mind it was probably useless. Don't be a meanie, Carl. The mystery boy replied. Except this time, he came off much more angry than before. It was like I could feel the hatred radiating from him, like he was a cooling tower and a power plant. Yet I still didn't have a clue what he looked like. Hey, I'm serious, knock it off, I shouted, making sure to put some rasp into my voice. The sudden sound of footsteps clashing against the sidewalk behind me made me jump like a frightened deer. I frantically looked around with my fists up in a boxer stance as the sound came closer and closer. It activated the deepest of primal fear and anxiety within me. The footsteps were small. They sounded like something that could come from a small boy. But yet, I felt like I was being hunted by a predator. If the kid was trying to scare me, then he was doing his job too well. The footsteps weren't followed by any sort of contact, and the boy still had yet to reveal himself, but that didn't comfort me in the least. Laugh at me all you want, but I was honestly glad that the kid didn't show himself. We see you, Carl. Came multiple voices this time, and simultaneously, they all had an echoing reverberation to them. It sounded as if they were underwater with some sort of sonar devices hooked up to their windpipes. The voices all surrounded me, a mix of men, women, and children. It almost sounded as if they were all happy, but not in a wholesome manner. It was a sinister and evil kind of happy, something that a not-so-nice kind of creature would use to lure children into a trap. But what I saw when I looked around, nothing will ever make me forget that. 
I peered my eyes to all of the houses in the area. I could see silhouettes in the windows. It was all men, women, and children. I couldn't make out any details of their features or bodies. They were all pitch black, with the exception of two red glowing dots coming from the area that was supposed to be their eyes. They all didn't move, not even a muscle. Their gazes all focused on me, while I stood there helplessly like a wounded gazelle surrounded by hungry lions. I could feel my hands shaking uncontrollably as sweat soaked my pores. My teeth grinded together as I involuntarily clenched my jaw. This is not your hour, Carl, said a much deeper male voice, with enough bass to shake the foundation of a mansion. It was raspy and did not sound humanly possible for even the most masculine of men to have. But right after that voice had spoken, I had suddenly awoken laying on the playground stairs in the park. The passing of time had seemed instantaneous, like I had only blinked instead of slept. What the heck? I huffed groggily, lifting myself up before pulling out my phone to check the time. 9.34 AM. Had I gotten drunk the previous night or taken something? I did everything in my power to rationalize what had happened, but no answer seemed correct. I felt as if I had been transported to an entirely different dimension. The usual sounds of people going through their normal daily routine was beyond comforting and cathartic after the horror of whatever had happened last night. I really wanted to play it off as just some bad and alcohol-influenced dream, but the logical side of me had no mercy on my psyche. I knew deep down what I had experienced was real, and not only was it real, but I had a feeling that it wasn't going to be a one-time thing. The worst part was my mind racing on the way back home. The fact that I had to deal with this alone hit me like a speeding semi-truck on the highway. It wasn't like I could tell anybody. It would be nothing but laughter and mocking before I was thrown into a mental hospital and labeled as just another unreliable crazy person who was in desperate need for recognition. Everything seemed fine in the morning. People walking their dogs, going to work and bringing home breakfast items from whatever fast food place they had chosen to go to. When I had arrived back home though, that was when I began to feel slightly on edge again. It should have been the opposite, but I felt myself unnecessarily tense up as I unlocked and opened my front door. The creak of the door followed by the eerie silence of the living room was nothing short of unsettling. I stepped inside and nonetheless... Little by little, trying to settle back into my humble abode as I kicked my shoes off, sat down on the couch and switched the TV on in order to try and enjoy my Saturday. But it unfortunately turned out to be the biggest mistake of my life. When the TV came on, there was nothing but a static feed, despite the fact that all the settings and cables were as normal as possible. Nothing was out of the ordinary from what I could see. I even went out of my way to check everything twice, yet I failed to find anything that could cause this. You gotta be kidding me. I growled frustratedly. As I was endlessly searching the back of the TV for the potential cause of the problem, a different noise had begun to erupt from the speakers. It was ambient, low and soft music, but something about the tunes felt off, 
they were almost too deliberate and calm. Soothing wasn't exactly the feeling I would describe when the music played. I took a few small and slow steps back to observe what was happening on screen, which was an even more unfortunate mistake. What I saw horrified me beyond description. I knew in that very moment that I would never be the same afterwards. The footage on the screen depicted the room of an old looking house. I could tell that no one had bothered to clean or take care of it in any way in years. The floorboards were beat up. The ceiling was cracked and covered with mold. On the walls it appeared as if the paint was trying to forcefully rip itself away. I could see one of the rusted looking windows in the background, confirming that the video was being filmed at night. What or whoever was holding the camera seemed to be standing at the bottom of the staircase. I could hear their heavy breathing as they held the camera shakily. The terror that I was feeling was laughably minuscule compared to their dread, but there was nothing funny about this. The camera quickly darted down to the floor and then back up to the top of the staircase, which put a near pitch black silhouette of a woman with glowing red eyes on full display, standing at the top step. The mysterious and ghostly woman was simply staring down at the unlucky soul filming the video. She looked exactly like the figures that I had seen last night, which sent ice-cold chills down my spine and made my hands shake with primal fear. The night is ours, came the voice of the female silhouette. The voice itself was scratchy and almost broken sounding, like that of a long-term smoker. Yet it was much more intimidating than any male voice I had ever heard. Her lips didn't even move as she spoke. Please, cried a voice coming from behind the camera. It was much softer and pleasant, a more smooth and feminine pitch, which also gave away the fact that the person filming was a woman. Although I was suspecting the filming was not voluntarily, I quickly pulled my phone out and opened up the camera app to begin recording what was happening on my TV screen. But as soon as the app opened, there was nothing but a black screen with a white text that read, Don't be a meanie, Carl. I had no choice. I had to keep watching. My morbid curiosity was peaking and I wanted answers. It wasn't like I could pause or use the remote to tamper with the footage in any way. I even attempted to record it with my DVR, but to no avail. The unseen woman in the video began to plead desperately. I could hear her voice cracking as she sobbed violently in the background, like a small child receiving corporeal punishment. I moved my eyes toward the hallway leading underneath the staircase. Another one of those black figures appeared. Except this time, it was the size of a small boy. He looked like what I had imagined the one from last night looking like. I was sure that it might have even been the same kid, or whatever that thing is. In each of his shadowy hands, he held two utensils, one being a steak knife while the opposite hand gripped a fork. They were both rusted. Multiple blades in the fork were bent incorrectly. The woman behind the camera began to cry even more desperately, crying a bloody murder as the figure of the boy began to slowly levitate down the dark hallway towards her. The only indication of his movement being those two red glowing eyes, slowly approaching the camera little by little through the darkness. 
It was like watching a bullet move toward you in slow motion. Every second of it was a breed of dread I couldn't describe, despite the fact that I wasn't even the victim. Suddenly, the pair of eyes sped up supernaturally fast and were just inches from the camera. The boy's voice turned into an angry and bitter whisper before saying, I hate you. He said it with such a cold-blooded tone that I refused to believe he was ever once a normal little boy. His phrase was quickly followed by a scream of bloody murder from the woman behind the camera, as blood messily splattered against the screen. Her cries of agonizing pain and indescribable terror could be heard for miles, as the sound of her skin tearing filled the room like a high-powered stereo. It was almost as if the universe was attempting to show me mercy when the video finally cut off and the morning news had replaced it. Although it was too late at that point, I simply drowned out the sound of the news as I slumped down out of the floor with my face in my hands. I quickly began to break down like a small child. I felt as if my world was collapsing in on me like a ton of bricks. I wanted to know why. Why me? What did I do to anger these beings that would make them want to hurt me? I wasn't a perfect person by any means. I've done some things in my life that I'm not proud of, but most people wouldn't consider me evil. I grabbed my laptop from the living room and bolted upstairs, slamming and locking the door behind me before turning on as many lights as possible, if the darkness was what they needed. All I had to do was subtract that from the equation. I would soon come to learn that this was a futile effort. I began typing up my experience of what had happened so far, and that's where we are now. It's been two days of me being locked inside my room with no food or water, but those nocturnals, as I call them, will come for me before starvation does. It's nighttime outside. I took a quick glance outside my curtains and saw them surrounding the perimeter of the property. They're closing in and I don't have much longer. To whoever finds this document, please share this. I beg of you. I need someone to get my story out there. Even if you don't believe it's true, I just need this to get out there. Now that it's been another day, the little boy's voice is coming from outside of my door. This is it. Whatever you do, do not look out your windows at night. Do not go outside. We do not belong in the dark. Our ancestors were right to be scared of the dark. Lock your doors. Turn on your lights. Because I... I watched madness spread its dark wings and descend on my Discord server. Written by N.S. Lewis I never thought that I would find myself at a funeral in some tiny Colorado town for some dude I only knew online, but here I am. I mean the funeral is over, and thank God for that, but I think I left some important part of me in that church. The rest of me is stewing in about a fifth of whiskey in some cheap hotel room, with a stained mattress and bugs skidding around in these shadowy corners. In other words... It's the perfect time and place to tell you what happened. This all unfolded on my former Discord server. I've since shut it down, 
but it used to be a place where hobbyist horror writers could get together to toss around ideas and trade critiques or just shoot the crap. There were about 100 members there, maybe about 20 who used it regularly, and a smaller handful that I'd gotten to consider friends. Jesse Farewell, who went by the nickname Wicked Ways, was one of them. Jesse wrote these really mind-blowing but incredibly bleak cosmic horror stories. You would start one of his stories about the unseen dimensions or whatever, and you wouldn't be able to stop. When you were done reading, you would come away with a real sense of existential dread that lingered for a long time. But in person, or I guess online at least, Jesse was the total opposite of his stories. Warm, open, encouraging, and kind. I grew to be quite fond of him, both as a writer and as a human being. The horror that Jesse endured began about two weeks ago. Maybe it began much earlier than that, but that was the first I saw of it. I stopped by the general chat channel on my Discord to check up on everything. Hey, how's everybody doing today? I'm stuck, in terms of ideas. Ah, little writer's block. Just take the first thing that comes to mind and write it down, no matter how dumb. <laughs> That's what I do anyway. The last time I did that, I ended up with a paragraph about butt gnomes. Oh well, not every idea is going to work out. No, it was awesome. I forgot all about it. I'll have to finish it now. Hey, good luck. Wicked Ways chimed in. Hey guys, so something kind of crazy happened to me today. I went out hiking by myself and ended up falling down a shallow cliff. I guess I hit my head because I was out for a while. I'm fine now, other than a fairly nasty cut on my arm. But the whole thing was pretty scary. Crap, man. Did you go to the doctor? Nah, I'm fine now. I cleaned out my wound and I feel okay. Just a little shaken up. Yeah, he's right. You might have a concussion. Crap, I don't have health insurance. Really, I'm okay. If I feel weird, I'll go to the ER. Thanks for the concern, though, guys. We moved on to other things then. I've been sitting here in my hotel room, thinking about that day. If there was something we could have done for him then to stop what was coming, I don't think there was. The next day, Jesse did go to the doctor. So, an update. I woke up this morning and my arm was oozing green through the bandage that I had wrapped it in. So, I bit the bullet and I went to the doctor for antibiotics. She gave me a manual test for concussions and said that she wasn't worried about that. But agreed, the infection was worrying. Especially since I had cleaned it with hydrogen peroxide and wrapped it up well. But I feel fine and the antibiotics should clear it up. Dang dude, that sounds awful. Uh oh, green ooze? That happened to my uncle once. It turns out it was alien juice. Uh, who knows? Maybe I was abducted and that's why I lost a couple of hours. I thought alien juice was blue. A friend told me that. And on that note, I'm out. I'm gonna go rest up. Later, dude. Yeah, see ya, I'm out too. Gonna go work on my two ding-dong story. 
It wasn't until the next morning that I started to get very worried about Jess. Over the night, I had received five or six DMs from different people telling me that I needed to have a talk with Wicked Ways. When I logged on to get caught up over my coffee, I saw that he was in the middle of typing a message. I scrolled up to see what had happened during the midnight hours. Here's what I read. Good evening. Morning for me. The walls are tall, but the walls will fall. All I need is the smallest crack, and I will reach in and tear them apart like a Thanksgiving turkey, and I will feast. What? Is that for a story or something? Yes, yes, it is a story. It's a slithering story, like a snake, worming its way through your brain. It is a story, and I will show you the truth. I will show you what it is right in front of you. The terrible face of God. Your stuff is always so weird and I love it. Love won't protect you. None of your paper mache shields will protect you. I will crumple them like the cheap things they are, Lisa. Um, how do you know my name? You're starting to make me uncomfortable for real. It's probably on a Google Doc that you shared here or something. I think he's just messing around. No, I have a separate account for that. I've never once shared my real name here. I'm stalking you. I'm stalking you all. Hey, dude, that's enough. It's enough for me anyway. Seriously making me uncomfortable. Goodbye. Hey, tell her that you're just messing around wicked ways. Honestly, you should probably apologize too. Jess... Below that, there was some discussion among other members about how Jess had crossed a line and needed to apologize. By the time that I got caught up, Jess had finished typing and had posted a new message. Hey everyone, I wanted to apologize for last night. I honestly have no memory of typing that awful stuff out. I'm not doing so well. I've had a terrible fever since yesterday afternoon. I don't know if it's a bad reaction to the antibiotics or what and those don't seem to be helping. The skin around my wound head started to turn purple when I checked on it this morning. I have a doctor's appointment in an hour, but I wanted to apologize to everybody and let you know what's going on. Dang man, that sounds truly terrible, and I'm really sorry, but I have to ask you this, because you made her really uncomfortable. How did you know Lost in the Woods' real name? Mo, oh, yeah, she used it in an anthology a while ago. And I recognize the story from here. My brain just picks up stuff like that. I swear that I haven't been stalking her or anybody else. And I'm so sorry that I used your real name. There's no excuse, but I seriously don't remember typing any of that. Hey, it's okay. Thanks for the apology and explanation. It honestly sounds like you have bigger things to worry about right now. I hope you feel better soon. Hey, thank you so much for graciously accepting my apology, and for the well wishes. Hey, let us know how it goes with the doctor, dude. Good luck. I will, and again, I'm so sorry. I'll talk to you all after. But we didn't hear from Jess that day. I sent him a DM checking up on him, and when I didn't get a response, I felt a growing sense of unease. 
I sent him two more DMs before he finally got back to me privately the next day. Hey, first of all, I want to thank you for your concern. You guys are really all I have in terms of friends. I know that's pathetic, but it's the truth. And it means a lot to me that you care. I think there's something really wrong with me. I went to the doctor yesterday to find out what to do about my fever and my festering wound. But when she took my temperature, there was no fever. And when she unwrapped my arm, there was still a nasty gash. But there was no discolored skin. She said that I was healing just fine. She said that I should stay on the antibiotics and that, and after a couple of weeks, the wound would be healed and all I would have to show for it was a scar. That was good news, but as soon as I got back home, the fever started again. And when I unwrapped my arm, I saw that it was worse than ever. The purple had spread, and now the area directly around the cot had turned to black. I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm so sorry to lay this on you, but like I said, there's really nobody else. My parents are both gone. I have a brother in California, but we haven't spoken in years. Is there any way that I can send you a picture of my arm, and then you can tell me what you see? If you're not comfortable with that, I totally understand, and I apologize for asking. I sat staring at my phone in shock for a few minutes before responding. Holy crap, dude. Yeah, send the photo. A few seconds later, the image came through and I nearly puked. It was awful. There was a deep gash running along Jess's forearm that was indeed oozing a sickly green. Surrounding the gash, the skin looked dead and rotten, and it looked like it was spreading. Go to the ER, now. So you see it? Yeah, gosh, please get immediate help. That does not look like something you should be messing around with. Thank you, I will. I had a hard time focusing at work after that, and felt a little sick to my stomach all day. I went home at lunch and I didn't go back in. The longer that I didn't hear from Jess, the more my sense of dread grew. The whole thing was horrible and strange. As I cycled through my thoughts, it did occur to me that this guy was just messing with me. Maybe he was doing some avant-garde horror thing, or maybe he was just being mean. I looked at the photo again. It looked real, but that didn't mean anything, except that I felt nauseous when I pulled it up. I spent the afternoon sending him DMs which kept going unanswered and trying to find out about him online. I knew his name and that he lived somewhere in Colorado, or at least I knew that he had told me that. I ended up finding an obituary from three years ago for David Farewell, 61, survived by his two sons, Malcolm and Jess. When I searched Malcolm's name, I found a Facebook page for a software engineer living in California. Since that was my best lead, I sent him a message, asking if he was Jess's brother. The school bus dropped my kid off at 3.15, and I sat on our couch with a YouTube video while I paced the house, drinking PBR to try and calm my unease, staring at my phone, waiting for a response, any response. People were chatting on the Discord like nothing was wrong, but something was very wrong. 
I felt it. The more time passed, the more sure I was that it wasn't a hoax. Something terrible was happening, and there was nothing that I could do to help him. Finally, mostly to give myself a task, I looked up the hospital in the town that had been mentioned in David Farewell's obituary. I called the ER department and asked for an update on Jess, lying and saying that I was his brother. They told me that he had been checked out a few hours ago and that everything had appeared normal. That made me feel a lot better, that Jess had actually gone to the ER and that they had looked him over. But the more I thought about it, the worse I felt. Yes, he had gone to the ER, which proved that this wasn't just some troll playing a prank on me. But at the same time, I had seen the photo. I had seen those bizarre posts from the other night. The fact that the doctors still weren't seeing anything wrong with him suddenly made the entire thing seem more sinister than ever. When my wife got home, I told her that I wasn't feeling well, and I went off to bed. I tried to just go to sleep because there was nothing else I could do, but I couldn't do that either. So I ended up just staring at my phone, waiting for some response from Jess. Finally, at about 6pm, the response came. It wasn't through DM. Jess was posted in the general chat channel. Hi everyone. Some of you know that I had an accident a few days ago. I'm sorry to say that things have gotten bad with me. The lower half of my arm has turned completely black. I can feel it spreading. The doctors have, for some reason, been unable to help me. Lucidity has been coming and going. Mostly going. I feel like I have to do something about this quickly, before it's too late. In case I don't get another chance to say this, I wanted to thank you all. The support and encouragement you all have given me, a complete stranger, over these last few months have been a true miracle to me. It's kept me from sliding into complete darkness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I'm going to cut my arm off. What? Is this for real? He's trolling us, he has to be. No, this is messed up. Hey everybody, I have a reason to believe that this is a serious, urgent matter. Please keep talking to Jess in an encouraging way. I'm calling the police. I watched the channel fill up with messages urging Jess not to cut off his arm as I searched for the local police department on my phone with a shaky hand. I found the number, dialed it, and explained the situation as best I could. That somebody in our Discord server claimed that he was about to remove his own arm. His name was Jess Farewell. I don't know his exact address, but the hospital should have it. He had been in the ER earlier that day. The dispatcher said that they would do what they could and to call back with any more information. I hung up and I jumped back on chat. Jess, are you still with us? Please don't do anything drastic. Help is on the way. I'm sorry that this is happening to you. Did you call the police? Yeah, but I didn't know his exact address. While I'm sure they can find it, I hope so. Gosh, is this real? We went around and around like that for a while in a panic. And then... I feel better now. And then he went offline. The next day, I got a message from Malcolm Farewell. 
Yes, Jess was my brother. I'm so sorry that I didn't respond to you as soon as I got your message. Maybe things would have gone differently. I'm flying out to Colorado tonight and we're going to have the funeral in three days. Jess didn't have many friends. You are welcome to attend. Just let me know and I'll send you the details as soon as they're worked out. Malcolm. I couldn't tell you why it was so important to me. I met Jess online and I barely knew him, but it was important to me. I booked the flight as soon as I had finished reading Malcolm's message. There were only six people at Jess's funeral. Me, Malcolm and his family, and the priest. I expected Malcolm to say a few words in memory of his brother, but he declined. I felt the urge to say something myself, but it felt too awkward. After the funeral, Malcolm thanked me for coming and I offered my condolences. I was about to leave it at that, but I couldn't. What happened exactly? I asked. My brother was very troubled, said Malcolm. Over the years, I tried to help him, but he didn't want my help and I couldn't force it on him. This was always going to be how it ended. But his arm, there really was something wrong with it. Nobody believed him, but he sent me a picture and I saw it. Malcolm put on a sad smile. Just went to art school for a few years and he was good at that stuff. Oh, I said, letting it wash over me. I see well, it was nice to meet you. And I'm sorry again about your brother. Thanks said Malcolm, and then he gathered his family and left the church. I stayed there for a long time, reflecting on how sad it was. I thought about how lucky I was to have my family and people who cared about me, about how that was the greatest thing in life. I wondered what life would be like without that, how I took it for granted, but there was nothing granted about it, and I resolved to change that and to treat each bond of love as a fragile miracle. I stood up and turned to leave when my phone buzzed against my thigh. I pulled it out and looked at it. There was a notification from the Discord app there. I had deleted my server, but hadn't gotten around to removing the app yet. As I looked at the notification, my mind swirled, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. It was a new DM, from Wicked Ways. It said, All I need is the smallest crack. Why I Don't Believe in Santa Written by Darkened Pages When I was six years old, all I wanted for Christmas was a new red Huffy bicycle. I wrote to Santa right after Halloween, making sure to give him extra time to get it for me. I did every chore my parents asked of me, and I brushed my teeth every morning and night. I even gave the $3.52 that I'd earned from clearing Mrs. Barker's driveway the last time that it had snowed. We only got a light dusting, but she was a sweet old lady, and let me use her broom to brush away the thin layer of flakes that hadn't already melted on their own. 
Needless to say, I was certain I was on the nice list, and thus had secured that magnificent bike. When Christmas Eve finally arrived, my mother made fish for her and my father, but since I didn't like fish, she let me have chicken nuggets instead. After dinner, we snuggled on the couch to watch the colorful lights twinkling on our heavily decorated Christmas tree, which had bowed slightly to the left side because when we put on the ornaments, I kept placing them all in the one place that I could reach. My mother read me the night before Christmas, and then we watched some Rankin-Bass specials until the lids of my eyes grew heavy and I was ready for sleep. We put out a plate of chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk on a table near the fireplace for Santa, as well as some carrots for his reindeer, and then I headed to bed. I was fast asleep from the moment my head hit the pillow, dreaming of riding around on my new red huffy bike that I was so sure I would be getting the next morning. My slumber was interrupted when I was roused by a clatter, causing me to wake up, fully alert. I excitedly climbed out of bed, doing my best to be silent as I quickly crept towards the living room, suspecting what I might see. When my head peered around the corner, I nearly yelped in delight. A large man in a red coat and hat was looming over the table where we had left the snacks. I could hear him slobbering as he devoured the cookies and slurped down the milk. Tiptoeing forward, I stood at the edge of the room, and I said in wonderment, Santa! The man whirled around, knocking the table over when he did and causing the empty glass of milk to shatter when it hit the ground. Now that I could see him better, I was a bit shocked by his appearance. His coat was covered in dirt and filth, but I figured that was just due to him constantly going up and down chimneys all night. However, his long white beard was fairly unkempt and there were flecks of grime and bits of half-chewed cookies peppered throughout. His teeth looked yellowed and rotten, several of them chipped or missing altogether. He glanced around with wild eyes until they finally found me, and he seemed to relax, the corners of his mouth turning up into a grin. No, it's just you, he said in a gruff voice that made the hairs on my neck stand up. Why aren't you in bed? You don't want me to take back all these presents I brought you, do you? I'm sorry. I replied apologetically. I heard a noise and just wanted to see if it was you. I guess Santa wasn't as silent tonight as he should have been. 
He sat down on the edge of the fireplace and said, Why don't you come tell Santa what you wanted for Christmas? And I'll make sure I got it right. I hesitated for some reason, as if deep down I knew something was off. But this was Santa Claus. It had to be. Who else would have come down the chimney and eaten the cookies and drank the milk and left all those presents? So, I shuffled over to him, trying not to let him see me wrinkle my nose when the stink emanating from his clothing filled my nostrils. He patted his knee and said, Come sit down Santa's lap and tell me. I climbed onto his knee and noticed that it felt a bit damp. He let out a laugh, but it didn't sound like the ho 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 you would normally think Santa would do. It was more like an over-eager laugh that became a cough halfway through. And when he did this, I was hit by his reeking breath. Um, I stammered. I wanted a new red huffy bike, remember? Oh, of course, he replied, grinning wide enough that I could see just how many teeth he was actually missing. Well, have you been a good boy this year? I think so. I answered meekly. I did all my chores and listened to mommy and daddy, and didn't cause any trouble. Good, good. Then I believe you made the not naughty list this year, my boy. Why don't you go have a peek at your presents? You might just find one that looks suspiciously bike-shaped. He grabbed me as he stood up, and he placed me back down on the ground, and then ducked into the fireplace. He turned back towards me and said, Remember, I see you when you're sleeping, and I know when you're awake. I know when you've been bad or good, and if you've been bad, like your mommy and daddy, Santa will have to give you coal in your sockets. You mean stockings, I asked, but he just grinned and began to climb up the chimney, moving like a spider as he disappeared. I heard him clattering on the roof and then he was gone. I started checking all the presents that were underneath the tree. Moving box after box aside as I hunted for the bike. But I didn't find one large enough that could have contained it. Disappointment set in. But I tried to fight it back. Knowing that I should be grateful for what Santa had given me. And not be greedy. I sat down on the couch and thought hard about what I could have done to make Santa not give me the bike and why he would have told me there could be one there when he knew there wasn't. I fell asleep while pondering the conundrum, but I didn't dream of the red huffy this time. When I woke up again, it was still fairly dark, but I could see the first glimmers of dawn breaching the starlit sky. 
I got off the couch to go use the bathroom, but something caught my eye. It was hard to see at first, but as I looked closer at where I had been sitting, I realized there was a large rust-colored spot staining the couch cushion. Worried that I would get in trouble, I flipped the cushion over and hoped my mother wouldn't notice. On my way to the bathroom, I checked the clock and saw that it was almost 6 in the morning. I figured my parents had gotten enough sleep, so after I was done emptying my bladder, I made my way to the room to let them know it was Christmas morning and Santa had delivered a bounty of gifts to us. I decided that I wouldn't mention anything about the bike, because really, I didn't want them to think that I was acting like a spoiled brat. I arrived at my parents' bedroom, and was a bit puzzled as to why their door was ajar, as they had always kept it closed at night. I pushed it the rest of the way open and rushed towards their bed. Mommy, Daddy, I called out excitedly. It's Christmas. When I got no response, I leapt under their bed and jostled them in an attempt to wake them up. It's Christmas, I repeated, but I still got no answer. I pulled the covers down, hoping that the blast of cool air would do the trick, but nothing happened. I pushed my mother a bit harder this time, and she rolled over onto her back. Ma mommy I choked out, and I could already feel the tears welling up and stinging my eyes. Mommy, wake up. Please, wake up. I was only six, but I knew almost right away that she wasn't going to wake up. Her chest was covered in red, and there was a large hole in the middle of it. I rolled my father over to find him bearing a similar wound. The thing that horrified me the most, though, was their eyes. They were staring at me with big, shiny black eyes. They had had coal stuffed into their eye sockets. It was just like Santa had said. I didn't know what to do, so I just sat there with my parents for hours. I heard the phone ring several times, but I wasn't allowed to answer the phone, so I just let it keep ringing. When I saw a dim red light reflecting through the window and onto the ceiling, for a brief moment I panicked, thinking it was Rudolph's nose, and that Santa had returned to give me coal as well. But the red was soon joined by blue, and when I looked outside, I saw an ambulance and a couple of police cars pulling up to my house. It turned out that my aunt had been calling since we were supposed to go over there after we had opened presents. And when we didn't show up, and nobody answered the phone, she called the police. They found me sitting amidst my parents, and they quickly carried me away, trying to shield me from the horror of the scene. 
but the damage had already been done. Everything after that was a blur of people checking to make sure that I was okay and talking to me about what happened. I told them about Santa and how he lied to me about the red huffy bike. They brought me over to the garage and showed me that the bicycle that I had been dreaming about was sitting there with a giant bow wrapped around the handlebars. I had wanted that bike so bad that I knew I should have been happy, but I just felt nothing. My aunt ended up taking me in and raised me alongside my cousins. She was good to me, as close to a mother as she could be, but I still thought of my real mom every night before I fell asleep. I tried so hard to remember her laughing and smiling, hugging me and kissing my forehead before bed. But the only image of her that ever popped into my mind was of her lying there, staring at me with those big, coal eyes. They never caught the man that did that to my parents, and I wonder about his last words to me. I worry that one day I'll see Santa again, and that will be the last thing I see with my own eyes. I think my friend became too obsessed with some local unresolved murder cases. Written by J.D. McGregor Police were unable to locate the missing children until 3 p.m. the next day. They didn't even know the exact location where they had set up camp the night before. It was the smell of rot in the air that ultimately led them to the tent, which the boys had pitched next to the creek. Seth leaned forward in his seat. He had his finger in front of him, reading the article aloud while he followed line by line with his finger. The blue light from his triple monitor setup glowed in his glaring eyes. All three youths were found with the crumpled and tattered remains of the tent collapsed on top of them. Their bodies had been beaten over and over with a blunt weapon which authorities are yet to locate. It's speculated three 14-year-old boys were already dead before the unknown assailant, still at large, started stabbing their bodies repeatedly through the fabric. I turned away from him before he could glance over and make eye contact. I sat on the edge of his bed, and then laid all the way down. I wondered when he at last washed his sheets. Over a month at least. It was only to be expected. No one around to impress when you've deliberately turned yourself into a social recluse. Of course, it had become my responsibility to address the issue. I suppose his mother had exhausted all the nagging techniques she could muster over the past couple weeks before she tried to give me a call. In fairness, I had known Seth since in middle school. He had always been one to experience his temporary bouts of timidness and introversion, but this was taking it to the next level. When you go nearly four weeks only traveling to and from work and stay locked in your room on the weekend, Ignoring all text and phone calls, bailing on plans you've already made, 
there's a problem there. Something is lingering up beneath the surface. It's terrifying, isn't it? Seth said. He narrowed his head closer to the screens. The more that I research it, the more I see what a high frequency of murders and disappearances this area has. We're more than 12 times the national average. Where did you get this figure, Seth? I've been super into these cases recently. Obsessed. Whatever you want to call it, it's just impossible to ignore once you lay it out in front of you. It's almost like they are neatly distributed among the surrounding townships throughout the county. Like they've been spread out just far enough so no one could piece it all together on first glance. I'm starting to think that I should be a detective or something. I'd be really good at this line of work. Either that or you're going to end up as one of those unsolved mysteries yourself. I tried to say it as jokingly as I could, hoping I would get some kind of lighthearted response out of him. Of course, he gave me none. It was almost as if he didn't even hear me. All he could see was the murder article on his computer. I checked his bedside table. The digital alarm clock had just turned to seven, and that meant that we were starting to run out of time. We needed to head back to my place to start pre-drinking within the hour, so we could get a good buzz on before we met the other guys downtown. I grabbed a mini football and started throwing it up and down. Do you remember the Gianni Falco case? He asked. He started clicking through more articles, bringing different news reports onto his screens. If I were to pour you a shot of whiskey right here now, would you take it? He scoffed at me and waved the back of his hand to me. Do you remember the Falco case? No. I don't understand how people just forget these things. He sat and shook his head. It wasn't even 18 months ago. It happened a little bit outside of town. He was walking his dog past tons of witnesses who confirmed they saw him. He goes over the Huntington Bridge and is never seen on the busy street from the other side. So what, Seth? So what? The railings are like six feet high. You could only get over them if you tried. So maybe he did try. Yeah, that's what you, the police, and everyone else in town seems to think. Just weird that when they found his body downriver at the dam three days later, there was light bruising around his eyes and his forehead. So you think somebody beat him up and tossed him over? Yes. And I think that they took his dog with them afterwards. They never found it. And this just happened randomly in broad daylight. Broad daylight, yes. Randomly, no. I really don't think so. Come here and check this out. I tossed the football from hand to hand and then finally decided to sit up. I scooched to the end of the bed to get a closer look. What do you think of this picture? He said. It was a black and white photo of two men. One was Falco. I could recognize his face from other articles that he had opened. He was dressed in a tux and stood in front of a boardroom table, shaking hands with an old man. Whoever that man was, he had a really abnormal look about him. The kind that you would take a second glance at if you saw them on the street. He had bulging, almost rectangular-shaped eyes pulled at the far sides of his face, 
like a hammerhead shark. His flat head was completely bald and covered in liver spots. Gray and curly hair lined the sides of his head. His crooked smile was missing teeth all over. What's significant about this picture? Is it some sort of special article? It's not from an article. I found it myself. I peered down at Seth from the corners of my eyes. The way that he was still so fixated on the screens unnerved me. Such attention to detail on any particular subject required some level of unhealthy obsession. And I wasn't convinced this fascination would necessarily yield positive results. You found it on your own. Yes, and it's freaking creepy, right? It's not the only thing that's creepy. It's also not a one-of-a-kind image. Here, check this out. His head darted between the three monitors. His fingers scaled the keyboard while he typed in the three boys' names from the tent murder case and brought up their Facebook pages and then started scrolling through them. He searched through the photos of deceased children. He scrolled over the well-wishes and sentimental posts from friends and loved ones. He passed them by like they were nothing, mere inconveniences slowing him down from where he needed to go. All of this happened while I stood silent over his shoulder. I needed to get out of that room. I had to think of an excuse to leave and then call his mother on the way home, and make sure that she fully understood the extent of her son's social and mental issues. This had progressed well past the point where a talk with an old friend could fix things, and this needed to be addressed by a professional. There, he yelled out, so loud that it startled me and snapped me back into focus. He had a picture of one of the boys in his school uniform. He was at what looked to be some kind of fun run, or some other outdoor charity event. He was on a soccer field with students and parents all over the place. He stood right in the center of the photo. His face definitely one of the boys pictured in at the attempt at murder article. He stood separated from the other children, and shook hands with the same creepy looking man from Falco's boardroom picture. The old man was dressed in the same button-up shirt and corduroy slacks. A cold shiver ran down from my neck to my lower back. I needed to sit on his bed again to collect myself. Is that... The same guy, yes. How did you find this? Research. It's possible that it's a coincidence, you know. 10,000 people in town, not that big of a place. You think so? He said. He started clicking wildly again, this time bringing up the articles of someone I did know, Yuri Malarkey. He had transferred to our school last year and was fitting in super well, until he had died in a car accident driving home from a party over Christmas break. You're not going to show me what I think you're going to show me. He opened Yuri's Facebook page and scrolled through his photos, and sure enough, he had found it. He stood on the sideline in full gear during a football game at his old school. A wall of coaching staff was lined up behind him. Sure enough, the old man was there, leaning over and shaking his head. I didn't know what to say. I was at a loss. The fact that we had even stumbled upon this was something that should have never happened. The fact that such a connection could even exist was so hard to fathom. Yet there it was. 
right in front of me. Glass of water, he said quietly. There is a certain pride in his voice like he was so proud of the fact that he had brought this to my attention. Uh, yes. He expanded the three images individually to each monitor, and then he got up and laughed. It sounded like there was a skip in his step as he made his way down the hall and towards the kitchen. I stared hard at all three photos. My eyes could only stand one for so long. It was just so intimidating. Something about that man shaking the different murder victims' hands seemed so foreign, like he wasn't meant to actually be there. And then it struck me. There was something physically off about all three pictures. The man, he wasn't only dressed in the same clothing each time. The way that his body leaned and oriented itself to the victim, it was the mirror image of the same position. And then I noticed the blurred lines, pixels around his edges. It was so subtle, so carefully done that I likely wouldn't have been able to notice it unless I had been staring at all three pictures blown up on the monitors and laid out side by side. Those photos had been altered. That man felt off because he wasn't actually in any of those images. He had been superimposed there. What exactly had Seth done? Had he photoshopped the pictures himself and found a way to get them up on these dead people's Facebook pages? Had he tricked me somehow and the truth was he had them saved on his computer all along? Was this some sick and twisted joke to freak me out? What else could his motivation possibly be? It was no longer a priority to get him out for the night of drinking with the boys. The only thing that mattered to me in that moment was getting out of that house and putting as much distance between me and him as possible. I stormed out of his room just as he had returned with two glasses of water. I jogged over to the door and started putting on my shoes. In a hurry, he said. I was hoping that you would stick around and we could discuss. Maybe dive deeper into some theories about this man. I gotta get back. Should I still come meet you guys at the bowl? Uh, sure. Actually, I don't know. I'll have to check with the guys if they're still thinking on going. I slammed the door and ran all the way home. I didn't care who saw me or how silly I looked. I needed to be away from Seth. I was ecstatic to not hear from Seth and safely assumed that he had chosen to bail on us in the end that night. I wound up drinking myself into oblivion at the bar. I needed the escape. I wouldn't have felt comfortable enough to take an Uber back out to the suburbs by myself and sleep comfortably in my own bed without as if I hadn't been so wasted. I think I could have slept into 4 or 5 in the afternoon the next day if I hadn't been woken up by my mother shaking me. She was on the verge of tears, saying something terrible had happened and that the police were at the door and needed to speak to me right away. They would question me briefly there and then eventually bring me down to the station to make sure they could get the most thorough and accurate series of events from the night before while it was still fresh in my mind. When I had ran out from Seth's house the night before, it was apparently the last time anyone had seen him alive. He had inexplicably decided that, instead of coming out for a night of drinking, he would rather go for a midnight swim in the quarry on the other side of town. 
This was despite the fact that he could hardly swim, and even decided not to mention anything to his parents or anyone else. And they found his clothes resting on top of his shoes next to the water. His body was at the bottom, minor bruising all over his midsection. I told him everything exactly as it had happened, even all the insanity he had displayed along with his extensive research and photoshopped pictures. Not that any of it would end up proving useful in the subsequent investigation. They held his funeral the next Saturday. It was a drizzly day. Patrons' suits and dresses were soaked through. They held it at the cemetery built a little downriver from the Huntington Bridge. There was a photo display set up inside the main doors of the church. So many memories of the two of us and our group of friends were immortalized on that corkboard. I could have spent hours looking at it and reminiscing on the good times that we had had before his very sudden decline into self-exclusion and mysterious cause of death. My eyes traveled over all the photos until they stopped dead on the one on the bottom right corner. It wasn't pinned on like the others. This one had a couple of staples running through it. My legs literally collapsed beneath me. My father had to rush over in a panic to pick me up. This photo was from inside his bedroom. The three monitors on his desk had familiar news articles on them. I lay flat on his bed with a mini football in my hands. The digital alarm clock read 7pm. Seth sat at the end of the bed right next to my feet. He looked sad staring into the camera. Not like the old days, when there wasn't a murder obsession on his mind. On his right sat the same old man in the same old clothes and grinned at the camera too. He leaned and shook Seth's hand. I stared at it as intently as I could. That picture had not been photoshopped. The police arrested my parents and I am freaking out. Written by N.S. Lewis Have you ever heard a rumor about yourself that finally made its way back to you after years of circulation, and you realized that everyone bought into it and accepted it 100% as a fact, even though that you know it's a complete lie? That's what happened to me, but way worse. People aren't saying just something trivial. They're saying that I'm somebody else. And you know what? I'm not even sure if they're wrong anymore. Maybe I am somebody else. One morning, a few weeks back, I was in the kitchen eating my Cheerios, messing around on my phone, and there is this loud knock on my front door. This is the police. I just about crapped my pants, you know. I had a joint all rolled up on my backpack, on the stool right next to me, but I thought, there's no way they're coming to get me for a joint, that would be nuts. Open the door. Mom was up in the shower, and Dad had already left for work. They kept on banging away at the door. I was scared as hell, but I didn't see that I had much choice. I got up and I peeked through the side window there by the door. And sure enough, it was the cops. Four of them. Four cops banging away at the door. I took a deep breath and I opened it. 
Calvin Dunlop, said one of the cops. A big, massive dude that looked like he could crush me with one hand. The hand that was resting on his gun holster. Step outside, you're okay now. Is Luis Brown inside? Uh, mom's up taking a shower. And I'm not Kevin Dunlap. I'm Nick Brown. Louis is my mom. This threw the big guy for a loop. He turned around and he looked at his buddies. And then a lady cop spoke up. She looked nice. Not nice enough for me to trust her, but nice. I don't know what they did to you, Calvin, but you're safe now, she said. Come with me. Your parents are waiting at the station. I started to get a little dizzy then. Dad's at work. Mom's in the shower. What is this? Why are you guys here? I heard one of the guys in the back mutter. Jesus, he said. He thinks they're his parents. The big guy cleared his throat. Step outside, son. We need to get in there and apprehend Louise Brown. It was a struggle to think at all. But I thought, back to all those cop shows and movies and whatnot. You guys got a warrant. One of the guys from the back thrust his hand forward. And there was a piece of paper there. I didn't know what the hell it said, but I figured it was a warrant. I stepped outside. She's upstairs, I said. She's probably, you know, naked, so be careful. The lady cop took me gently by the arm and walked me down the steps into one of the cop cars. I turned my head and saw the rest of them go in the house. Am I in trouble? I asked. You're safe now, Calvin, she said. I wondered who the hell Calvin was and why the hell they kept calling me that. Why the hell were they arresting my mom? Get in, said the cop, holding the back door open. And then, just like in the movies, watch your head. What was I supposed to do? I got in and we drove off. You're not hurt or anything, right? She asked. Nah, I said. Just, you know, confused. When we get to the station, we can see your parents briefly. But then we have a lot of questions for you. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's very painful and scary for you. But we have to get your version of the events. She was right. It was scary. We got to the station and there standing by the front door were two people. A man and a woman. They were crying. I had never seen them before in my life. The lady cop opens up my door and said... It's alright, you can go to them. I stood up, but I didn't go to them. They came running over to me, and both of them wrapped me in this wicked bear hug. Calvin, they kept saying over and over again, sobbing. I guess they thought I was this Calvin character too, but I wasn't. I was Nick. It was hard to breathe in that hug, but I finally choked out some words. Who are you guys? They pulled away and looked at me in a sort of shock. It's mom, said the man, and dad. He gave the cop a questioning look. He seems to be confused at the moment, she said. That's why it's imperative that we get him inside and keep the investigation rolling. We'll have him back out as soon as we can, Mr. and Mrs. Dunlop. 
She took my arm again and we started walking down the pathway to the front door. Wait, cried this Mr. Dunlop. Just one second. He dug in his back pocket and pulled out a wallet. He opened it up and held it out to me, stepping forward. Look, Calvin, it's us. Behind a little shield of plastic, there was a picture of this guy with a little kid sitting on his lap. The kid was maybe, I don't know, five years old. Sure, he maybe looked a little like I did at that age, but the picture was small and it didn't blow me away or anything. And the intense look in this stranger's face was starting to creep me out. Oh, yeah, I said. Uh, cool. Well, I better be getting inside, right, officer? We were in that room for hours. It was hell. I cried, I puked, I pulled a clump of my hair out. They asked my parents, Mr. and Mrs. Brown, they called them, ever hurt me. No, of course not. They asked if I'd remembered anything about the day of my kidnapping. What the hell are you guys talking about? What kidnapping? They asked if I ever tried to contact anybody for help. Help from what? And on and on. They were convinced that I was this kid, Calvin Dunlop. But I wasn't. Look, I said at the end of my robe, you guys screwed up big time. Can I just go home now, or school, or anywhere but here? Do you want to see your parents for a minute? Asked the detective, some dude with a ridiculous mustache. Yes, I said, feeling relieved for the first time that day. Wait, no, I want to see mom and dad, my real mom and dad, not those two freaks that hugged me before mustache side. Those are your real parents, Kelvin. Look, hold on. He turned to the mirror. I knew again from the cop shows that it was a trick mirror. Jerry, bring my laptop in here, yeah? A few minutes later, this Jerry guy came in with the laptop and set it in front of mustache. Mustache screwed around for a bit and then flipped the computer around so I could see it. Take a look, he said. Scroll through those pictures. There were hundreds of them. Me as a baby, me as a toddler, me as a little kid and so on. I recognized some of the pictures. My parents had shown them to me at various times. Some of them were even printed out and hanging on their walls. But others, well. There were a lot of them with where I was with those people who had hugged me. The people claiming to be Calvin's parents. The people claiming that I was Kelvin. That's when I puked. And I'll tell you what they told me. Ten years ago when I was five years old, Lewis and Andrew Brown had kidnapped me. Nobody knows why or how. They moved us from Florida to a little town in Maine. They had birth certificates and all that shit. A social security card. So, they moved us to Maine, enrolled me in school, got jobs and all that. And meanwhile, my real parents were going out of their minds, calling the FBI, stapling posters to telephone poles. Apparently, I was even on a milk carton at one point. They had just woken up one morning, and I was gone. The thing is, I don't remember it that way. I hardly remember anything from when I was that age, but I definitely don't remember Mr. or Mrs. Dunlop. I remember my parents, Lois and Andrew Brown. Vague globs of memory, sure, but I do remember them. 
I do remember that we lived in Florida, and then we had moved to Maine. The cops can't explain any of that. They say that I had to have been brainwashed. They didn't use that word, but it's what they meant. But I don't think you can just go in and change somebody's memories. And it's more than memories. It's a feeling. I'm living with them now, Mr. and Mrs. Dunlop, back in Florida. I beg them, somebody, anybody, to let me stay in Maine, where my friends are. Hell, I'm almost done with high school, and now I have to haul off and start over again. I haven't seen the Browns, the people that I still feel are my real parents, since that morning this all started. Like I said, it's a feeling more than anything. Something is off with the Dunlops. Most of the time, they don't do shit. They just sit there, staring at me, not saying anything. They make me sit at the dinner table and eat dinner with them, but they don't say anything. They just chew in silence. And then one of them will randomly come out with something over the top. How was your day today, son? Just like way over-enthusiastic, you know. And I'll say something like, Well, it was terrible. I'm really scared and I don't know what's going on. And they'll say, Well, isn't that something? And go back to eating in silence. I don't know. Maybe they got screwed up by the whole thing. But it just doesn't feel right. Lois and Andrew, they could be assholes, but they felt like my parents. And now they're locked up somewhere. I don't even know where. Another thing that's really messing with my head is that there's no media coverage of this. Not in Maine, not in Florida, not anywhere. I mean, I'm not trying to come off as important here, but you think that you would hear something about this, right? It's a crazy story. I asked the Dunlops about this, and they said that they went through a media circus when I went missing, and they didn't want to go through one again. So maybe it's not that weird after all. Maybe I've seen too many movies where the story always gets out to the press, but it sure seems like I should have seen something. Like, what about my friends back in Maine? Wouldn't they be talking about this? Speaking of my friends, I haven't been able to talk to them since this horror show kicked into gear. They all unfriended me, and they're not answering my text messages. Corey's the only one that I ever heard back from. After sending him like a thousand texts, he wrote back, I'm not supposed to talk to you, Calvin, and after what you did, I don't want to talk to you, Calvin. What? After what I did. I sent another million texts to Corey after that. What did you hear? I don't think you heard the real story. Come on, man. Tell me who told you what. And so on. So, that's where I'm at. I'm freaked right the hell out. I don't know what's real. I don't know what I want to be real, as if I had a choice. I don't know what I can do. I'm not even sure who I am. If anybody has any ideas that would help me sort this out, please, I'm begging you. Tell me what to do. Hey guys, I can't thank you enough for the response to my last update. I've been so lost and lonely that all of those helpful and supportive comments gave me a real lift. Plus, my head's been a mess. So, it's been really hard for me to think about what to do next. And I missed some obvious stuff that you guys suggested like a DNA test to sort out who my real parents are. So that's where I decided to start, with the DNA test. The problem was that I didn't have my license yet, let alone a car. I didn't even have a bike. 
So getting around was a problem, but not the worst one. The worst one was that I didn't have a single penny to my name, to either of my names. I was pretty much at the mercy of my parents, Cheryl and Abel Dunlop. At least until I figured out how to get started on some of the more complicated stuff that you guys have brought up. The morning after my last post, I decided that I would confront them directly. Cheryl was in the kitchen cooking pancakes. When she saw me come in, she busted out this crazy smile. It looked like it would actually hurt to smile that hard. Good morning, my son. She almost shouted. I made you pancakes. Hey, mom, I have to ask you something. Anything. Well, I'm honestly really weirded out by this whole thing. I mean, I don't remember you at all. No, isn't that something? She cried out between the creepy smile. You don't remember your own mother. Yeah, it is. So, I was thinking. It's nothing personal, but can we get a DNA test? To, you know, just confirm that you're really my mom. And Abel's my real dad. It would make me feel a lot better. That smile dropped in a second, and her face went pale. Calvin, she said, now in this voice that was pretty much a whisper. You saw the photographs of us together. I'm your mother. You don't need to do a DNA test. My stomach pulled in on itself. This woman obviously wasn't my mother. If she was, she wouldn't have a problem with the DNA test. I wanted to run out the damn door, but where would I go? I took a deep breath, gripping the back of a chair. Well, it's just you said that there was a lot of media coverage from when I was kidnapped, but I looked online and there's nothing. So, I mean, I'm sure you're my mom, it's just, I just want to get the test and then I'll feel better. And then that smile was back. Oh, is that all? A lot has changed in 10 years, son. We used to have four local newspapers. Two of those papers folded for good. The other two were bought out by a conglomerate. The online archives must have got lost in the shuffle. That's all. Oh, that's all, I thought. Awfully convenient. Well, that's why I want to get a DNA test. Just as some proof that you really are my mom. I mean, it's pretty easy to Photoshop. I don't know if those photos of us are real or not. You didn't let me finish, son, said Cheryl, almost screaming now. We have a box full of clippings and videotapes of the segments that aired on the news. That's part of the evidence that we have presented to the police. You don't think they just let us take you without solid evidence that we're your parents, do you? Oh, I said, relaxing just the tiniest bit. Can I see it? Of course said Cheryl. Will you eat first, before the pancakes get cold? Nah, I said. I'm not really hungry. Can I just look at the articles and stuff? Of course. Now she did shout. Abel, will you bring the box? Oh, of course, shouted Abel from the other room. A few endless minutes later, he walked in and dropped the box on the kitchen table. Why are we dragging out this old stuff? He isn't sure that we're his parents, said Cheryl, letting out this weird, fake laugh. He doesn't remember that he was kidnapped. Isn't that something, said Abel, 
he doesn't remember his own kidnapping. I opened the box and started digging through it. Sure enough, there I was, five years old on the front page of a newspaper. Five-year-old boy missing, the headline said. And then below the picture, Kelvin Dunlop disappeared from his home yesterday morning. There were about a dozen or so articles in there from different papers covering the kidnapping. There were also a few old video cassettes. Can we watch these? I said, holding one up. No, of course, said Abel. He took the videotape and we went into the living room, where he popped it into the DVD VHS combo player. He fast forwarded through the weather and a few commercials, and then there I was again, this time on the TV screen. My mind was mush. Why didn't I remember any of this? That was me, right? It didn't make any sense. And then slowly, a thought formed. Maybe it was just somebody who looked like me. A lot like me, sure. Eerily like me. But maybe it wasn't me after all. I looked at Abel. Okay, I said. I believe that your son was kidnapped. And I'm really sorry about that. But sorry, I think I do need that DNA test. Now Abel's face went pale, like Cheryl's had before. A DNA test? I don't think that's necessary, Calvin. We're, uh, we're a little cash-strapped right now, too, I'm afraid. After all that travel and time off of work. Why don't you just give it a few days? Your memory will start coming back, I'm sure. I don't know what those monsters did to you, but you'll remember. I'm sure of it. And then he started crying. Good show, but no way in hell this man was my father. Sure, I said, doing the best to choke down the fear in my voice. The crazy thing is that after that, I did start to remember stuff. No, the really crazy thing is what I remembered. Not about the Dunlops, about the Browns and my friend, Corey. Abel drove me to school that morning. We were stone silent. I pulled on my phone and tried texting Corey for the billionth time. Come on, dude, please respond. I don't think the Dunlops are my real parents. I'm scared. What are you doing, son? Asked Abel as I typed away. Not just texting an old friend, I said. I miss him, you know. It really sucks. Oh, you'll meet new friends. I didn't want to. I wanted my old friends back. I started to get really pissed. At the Dunlops, at the cops, at everyone involved in this shit show. At Corey. Why wouldn't he talk to me? Why was he so quick to cut me off? Why did he believe whatever it was that somebody was telling him? He had been my best friend practically since we met. And that's when the memory came to me, in a flash. We were in Maine at the gravel pit, where we had had parties by a big bonfire. Only we weren't drinking beers and shooting the shit as teenagers. We were little kids. It was a long time ago. The fire was there, climbing up into the dark night. Corey's face was covered with something. Blood. Was he hurt? No. He dipped into a bucket and pulled out fingers wet with dark liquid. He smeared them across my forehead. What? I don't remember that. 
What the hell was that? I know that seems like a weird way to put it, but it's exactly how I felt. Like I was remembering something that I didn't remember. Now that's just crazy. The bronze were there in my memory too, Lois and Andrew. They were wearing long dark robes and chanting. They were chanting something I couldn't make out. What the hell? I said out loud. The memory disappearing away as quickly as it had arrived. What's that, son? Said Abel, pulling into the school parking lot. Oh, nothing. I just had a weird thought. My phone buzzed. I looked in shock to see that it was a message from Corey. Finally. But when I looked at it, I got creeped out in about seven different ways. Especially after that crazy flash of memory. It read, They're not your real parents. Don't listen to their lies. Come home, Nick. To your real family. I had a miserable time at school, as you might imagine. Finally, the bell rang and Abel was out there waiting for me. I got in the car and he handed me a piece of paper. What's that? I asked. The DNA test, said Abel in a soft voice. He seemed like an actual human being now. We had it done in Maine. We had to. It was the only way that they would release you to us. We never wanted to. We vowed we never would. That I would be your real father no matter what. Then son, this has been so hard for us. We haven't seen you in ten years. We don't know what to do, how to act. We were going to wait until things got to something resembling normalcy before we told you. But I can see that you need to know now. So, here it is. I looked at the paper. It said that I was a genetic match to Cheryl Dunlop, but not Abel Dunlop. Neither of the Browns were a match. Wait, I said, even more confused than ever. So you're not really my dad, but Cheryl's my mom. Abel took a deep breath and let it out. Sixteen years ago, we... I wasn't the only man in your mother's life. When she got pregnant with you, she told me everything, and we made the choice together. That we would have you, and I would be your father. And then he started sobbing. And I am, goddammit. No matter what that piece of paper says, no matter what those monsters did. I looked at the paper again. It could be a fake. I do vaguely remember somebody sticking a Q-tip in my mouth when I was at the police station. But it's all such a blur of horror and confusion. And I don't know why exactly. Maybe I'm dumb. But I believed him. I patted Abel on the shoulder. It's okay, Dad. When we got home, I headed to my room to process everything. On the way there, I passed by the ancient TV that they had in the living room and I got hit with another memory. I was sitting in front of that TV as a little kid watching cartoons alone, but then I felt something behind me. Four people were standing there watching me. One of them put his finger to his lips, shushing me, and I was too scared even to cry out. I knew his face. It was Corey's father. Andrew Brown was there too. He bent over to me and put something over my mouth. And then the memory ends.
I stood frozen in front of the TV when my phone buzzed. It was another message from Corey. Don't believe their lies, it said. Help is coming. We're bringing you back home. I think that the Dunlops are telling the truth. I think that Cheryl is my biological mother, and Abel is my father by right. I think that the Browns kidnapped me, and Corey's family was involved. After an afternoon and a night, locking myself in my room, trying to work it out, that's what I think. And beyond that, I don't have a clue. Corey's message and those memories of him and his father are seriously freaking me out. He's been my best friend for 10 years. What the hell is going on? I saw in the comments from my last post that some of you know a lot about how memory works. Is there anything I can do to help remember more? I think that would help me figure out what happened and what's happening now. Or if not, are there any ideas about what I should do next? I think I'm going to tell the Dunlops about the memories and the messages from Corey. I think that's safe. But you guys were so helpful last time. I know I can trust you. So, before I do anything else, I want to hear your advice. Hey guys, I'm typing this on the old desktop in Able Study. There's a big dude sleeping on the couch. I really hope he doesn't wake up. I don't know what would happen to me if the Dunlops knew I was posting about all of this, but I don't want to find out. So, once again, thank you for reading and responding to my last post. It seemed like the advice was more mixed this time. And I guess that's because my situation has been so balls crazy that it's hard to know what to do. It hasn't gotten any less crazy since my last post. It's gotten crazier. Some of you suggested that I just go ahead and tell the Dunlops about the freaky flashbacks I had about the weird ritual. Where a had smeared me with something like blood when we were little kids. And the one where I had remembered my kidnapping involving Andrew Brown and Corey's dad. And about the message from Corey saying that help was on its way. Others suggested that I keep my mouth shut until I found somebody neutral that I can trust. Well, yesterday morning I went ahead and laid it all out for the Dunlops. I mean, between the articles about somebody getting kidnapped who looked exactly like me, and my own memory of it, plus the DNA test which was probably real, I figured their side of the story was legit. And I felt that I had to do something fast, given Corey's text about help coming. When I was done telling them about it all, I have expected them to say, Well, isn't that something? And then cook me up some pancakes or whatever, but they didn't. As I told the story, their smiles kept dropping and dropping until they were completely gone. Your friend's father, said Abel, giving me this intense stare. The one who helped kidnap you. What is his name? Uh, Jack. Jack Calloway, I said. And what does Jack Calloway look like? Asked Cheryl, also shooting me an eerie stare. Uh, I don't know. Tall, big beer belly, going bald. Does he have a scar on his face like this? Abel drew his finger across his face next to his eye, right where Corey's dad had a scar. Holy shit, I said. You guys know him. Abel and Cheryl looked at each other with wide eyes. They looked scared. And then Cheryl nodded and Abel pulled his phone out of his pocket. Are you calling the police? I asked, 
relieved that somebody was finally taking charge. Abel totally ignored me and dialed a number. My house, he said into the phone. They're coming. And then he hung up. What? That, uh, was that the police? Do you know a cop or something? How did they know what you were talking about? What's going on, Dad? Your phone, said Cheryl. It's not safe for you to have it. Hand it over, son. My brain started screaming at me that something was very wrong. Hand over my phone, why? Now's not the time to explain, son, said Abel. You're in great danger, we all are. Hand the phone to your mother. I was a mess by then. Just raw nerves and scared out of my mind. But I wasn't going to give up my phone. No, I said. I need it. Abel stood up and took a step toward me. I stood up and took a step toward the door. He grabbed my shoulder hard and I felt it. I felt like he could crush me if he wanted to. And then he might just want to. I started to feel sick and dizzy. Your phone, son, he said, holding out the hand that wasn't digging into me. There was nothing I could do. I pulled the phone out of my pocket. Tears started to well up. But as I was handing my phone over, I saw that I had missed a text from Corey. Good boy, said Abel, releasing his grip on my shoulder. You're an asshole, I said. You're not my dad. Abel flicked my phone open and read the message. They're close, he said to Cheryl. Get some tea ready. And then he turned to me. You, go to your room and stay there. I understand that you're upset. This is not because you talked bad to your father. It's for your own safety. I wanted to make a run for it out the front door. But what would I do after that? No wheels, no cash, no phone. And something told me that the Dunlops wouldn't let me just get away. There was a gas station about a mile down the road, but there was no way that I could make it. Not without a vehicle. I tried to think where they kept the keys to their cars. I had no idea. I was trapped. Screw you, I said. And then I headed up to my room, flopped on my bed, and started crying like a baby. It was the tea that Cheryl was making. I could smell it all the way down the hall and through my bedroom door. It had a weird, strong smell. In my last post, some of you mentioned that smells are the strongest triggers of memory, and you were right. As soon as I smelled that god-awful tea, I was hit with one hell of a memory. I was a little kid. It was before I had been kidnapped. There were a bunch of people in our house. I was supposed to be in my room, but I wasn't. I was peeking through the door of the study. That's where everybody was. They all had this patch sewn on their white shirts. I couldn't make out the symbol, but they were all wearing it. My father was there. I don't mean Abel Dunlop. I mean my real father. I don't know how I know it was my father, but I know. I don't remember anything else about him, but I know that it was my father there, sitting on the couch next to Cheryl. She was handing him a cup of tea. Abel was there too, and so was Corey's dad, about eight other people. My father took a sip of tea, and then he keeled over. I cried out and everybody whipped their heads around and saw me peeking in. And then I was running, and that's all I remembered.
Back in the nightmare present, I heard people starting to come into the house. I was staring up at the ceiling, trying to shake off the shock of the memory. I couldn't quite put it together. My real father, they did something to him. Something was in that tea, and Cheryl, my mother, I was now sure, made him drink it. And those patches, it seemed like some kind of a secret society or cult or something crazy like that. My father had been a part of it, and my mother, and Abel, and Corey's dad. It was too much. It was way too much. It was already too much even before that. It was more than too much now. The window, I thought. Climb out the window and just run like hell. I got out of bed and looked out the window. I could see the front door from there. Two dudes were standing on either side of it with big guns resting against their shoulders. Cars were pointing into the driveway. As the people got closer, I recognized some of them, but not all. They all had that patch sewn on their shirts. One woman looked over and saw me. A huge, terrible smile spread across her face, and she waved at me. She had been there in my memory. I slammed the curtains closed and curled up in a ball on my bed. Finally, I got up and put my ear to the door, trying to hear what was going on. I was way too scared to actually open the door. I couldn't hear much, just people talking, and I couldn't make out what they were saying. I went back to bed and just stayed there all night, trying to piece it together. The Browns, now in jail, kidnapped me with Corey's dad's help. They were a part of that crew in Maine, that seemed to be a cult or something, and they were wearing long robes and smearing me with a crap and chanting. But before I was kidnapped, there was another weird crew. These guys maybe killed my real dad, and the Dunlops were obviously deep in it. Corey's dad was a part of that crew too. These guys wore patches with some kind of symbol sewn on a white shirt. And now the robes were apparently coming down to try to get me from the patches. At least, that was my best idea. Why were they fighting over me, and who were they really? I don't know, and I didn't have the foggiest idea. I just wanted it to be over. And I felt in my gut that it would be over soon somehow. And that didn't exactly make me feel much better. People started leaving the house just as the sun was coming up. I watched them all go. Even the Dunlops left. But there were still a few cars in the driveway, and when I looked over, sure enough, there were still two people standing by the front door with rifles. Different people, like they had changed shifts or whatever. I was exhausted, but also wired up, you know. I finally got the balls to creep into the Dunlop's bedroom and look for my phone. I couldn't find it. I thought about looking around some more to see what I could dig up. But then I remembered that there was a computer in the study. That's why I headed in there and found that dude snoring away on the couch. The first thing I did was find the local police website and send off an email. I haven't heard back yet though, so I don't even know if anybody got it, let alone if they believed it or if help's coming. And then I started writing this update, while I wait for a response. I don't know if there's much that you guys can do for me at this point, but maybe you have some ideas. I don't know when or even if I can log back and to check your comments, but I'm pretty desperate at this point, so I thought that I would give it a shot. I think that something terrible is about to happen. Oh shit, 
I just heard a car pull into the driveway, and I hear people talking outside. I gotta go, guys. I want to thank you guys for being there with me during this nightmare. For most of it, you were all I had. The only ones that I could trust. I really should be lying low right now. But I wanted to make this last post because I know a lot of you have been wondering what the hell was going on. And you've been worried about me. I did cut off my last post because I heard someone coming into the Dunlop house. I didn't want to get caught at the computer so I ran back to my bedroom. I locked the door and I hopped in bed and pulled the covers over my head. I heard footsteps getting closer, and then they were right outside my door. Somebody knocked. Kelvin Dunlop, this is the police. Are you in there? We got your email. Thank God. I got up and unlocked the door. As I was opening it, I wondered why there wasn't more of a commotion with the guards at the front door if the cops were now here, but it was too late. He shoved the door the rest of the way open and stepped in. Isn't that something, said the cop, with that same awful smile that all these guys had plastered on their faces. Kelvin Dunlop in the flesh, well I'll be. That's it, I thought. I turned and was getting ready to just smash through the window and make a run for it. There were still armed guards out there by the door, but there was an armed and crazy cop in here with me. At least out there was some open space and I'd have a shot. Not much of a shot, sure, but something. The cop grabbed me by the arm, and then I wasn't going anywhere. Please, I said, too exhausted to sob. Just tell me what this is about before you kill me. We're protecting you, Kelvin, said the cop, still smiling. The smile didn't fit with the big meaty hand gripping my arm, and I didn't feel protected from anything. Protecting me from what? I groaned. I am so honored that your mother and father have selected me to enlighten you. He shoved me down onto the bed. The bad people have brainwashed you, Calvin. You have forgotten your purpose. You have forgotten that in 17 days, the world is going to burn. You have forgotten that you are the vessel that will carry us to safety. When he said that last bit, he pointed up at the ceiling. The room began to spin as I tried to form a thought. There was something about uh, 17 days. Who are the bad people, and why do they want me? I asked. I figured that was a good place to start. The cop opened his mouth, but the sound of a gunshot coming from outside cut him off. I just about pissed myself, you know. Terror on top of fear on top of horror. A nice shit sandwich if ever there was one. Isn't that something? said the cop. They're here. You're safe with me, Calvin. I obviously didn't feel very safe with him, especially not after he had whipped out his gun. Another gunshot. I tried to look out the window, but couldn't see very well from the bed. And then the gunshots really started popping, one after the other, like a war was going on out there. In between the loud bangs, I heard tires screeching and people shouting. God damn it. A month ago, my biggest problem was making sure I didn't wake up my parents while getting home late at night. But then it turned out that those weren't my parents at all. And now, I was here. The fighting was getting closer to the house and before long, I had the front door banging open. And then, there were people inside. The cop cocked his gun and pointed it at my bedroom door. 
ready to blast away whoever had tried to get in. I got up as quietly as I could and crept over to the window. This was my shot. But when I looked out, I saw that there were four people there, crouched down, right in front of my window guarding it. They were wearing dark robes. I heard people screaming. I heard people groaning in pain. Sometimes, I would hear this really gross and horrifying splattering sound, like something wet was hitting something hard. I heard a ton of gunshots. And then the door to my room was flying open, and the cop started shooting at it. I ducked down and covered my ears. A second later, a body thumped right down next to where I was crouched. It was the cop. He had a freaking arrow sticking out of his forehead. His dead eyes were staring up at the ceiling. His smile was gone. My ears were ringing like hell, but I heard it. Nick, Calvin, listen to me. You have to come with us right now. And then I saw an arrow fly from the doorway to the window, shattering it. I looked up and there was Corey's dad, Jack, standing there with a crossbow in hand, dressed in one of those dark robes. What is happening? I shouted. Jump out of the window, said Jack. You're safe now if you hurry. Not until you tell me what this is about, I said. Look, these people, they're a cult. The Dunlops, your mother. I was a part of it at once too. The Starlighters, they're called. Calvin, the day that you turn 16, they're going to kill you. I would turn 16 in 17 days. Jesus. And who are you guys? We rescue people from Carlton and give them their lives back, said Jack. I'll explain everything later. Right now, we have to go. Corey's dad never got a chance to explain anything more than that. I heard the gun go off, felt the splatter of blood, and then he was down, right on top of the cop. I couldn't help it. I puked right on his body. Standing there in the doorframe was Abel Dunlop, holding a big gun. He walked slowly over to the window and let off four quick shots, killing the robes who were out there. Isn't that something, said Abel. Old Thomas the Troublemaker. That's his real name, you know. Not Jack. Thomas. He lied to you, son. Abel reached down a bloody hand to me. I slapped it away. You killed my father. I said, and you're going to kill me. Not at all, son. I'm going to protect you from them. If they get a hold of you, it's too terrible to think. In 17 days, you're going to kill me. Lies, said Abel. In 17 days, we are all going to be free. We are going to the stars. It's the ones left behind who will be in trouble. A second later, Abel's head was on the ground his tongue sticking out of his mouth. A half a second later, his body hit the ground too. I blinked hard and looked up. What now? My father was standing there. My real father. The one from the memory I had where these starlighters forced him to drink poison tea. He was holding a bloody samurai sword. Dad. Let's go, kiddo, he said. He reached out his hand and I took it. He yanked me to my feet. Jump out the window and run. He pulled a gun out from behind his back. I'll cover you, but I think it's pretty clear by now. The gunfire had definitely died down a lot. There's a jeep backed in by the garage. If I don't make it, 
Just drive, son. Find Corey. He'll tell you everything. I don't know why exactly, but I 100% trusted this guy that I only had a single memory of. This guy coming to me in the middle of the craziest shit that you can imagine. I got up and I jumped out of the window. The front yard was covered with bodies. Some of them weren't quite dead. I ran by one guy who was stretching his arm out to me. He had a patch sewn to a shirt that used to be white, but was now red. That patch had a bunch of stars on it. I'll see you in the stars, Kelvin. He gasped at me as I ran past. It'll really be something. My dad and I made it out of there in his jeep. I'm going to summarize what he told me, because I kept losing my focus and interrupting him to ask questions. Corey has filled in some of these details too over the phone. When I was a kid, my parents were nerds. My dad came up with this idea to start the Starlighters Club, where they would come up with these elaborate scenarios and act them out, like they were the last defenders of the universe against some evil aliens that were going to come and torch the place. It was just for fun, you know, like LARP. Corey's dad was a part of the club. And then Abel Dunlop joined the gang, and things took an intense turn. He got a little too into it, and soon the whole group did, including my mother. She kept dropping character less and less, and then she stopped altogether. She really started believing this shit. Everybody did. And then Abel started talking about the Great Merge. That really just meant killing me when I turned 16. As soon as he heard that, my dad went to the cops. But it turned out that a few of them had heard about these Starlighters and wanted to join, so they weren't any help. My dad called everybody together. He was still their captain. He was going to tell them all to cut it out and find another hobby, but Abel knew that. He had Cheryl spike my dad's tea. Nothing lethal. In fact, the plan was to keep him alive long enough to kill him right alongside me. That would give the whole thing some extra juice, apparently. Corey's dad had volunteered to keep my dad in his basement. On the drive over, my dad woke up and dug his fingernails into Jack's or Thomas's face. That's where the scar came from. But Jack had the needle ready to go and knocked my dad out again. It took a year of living in his basement, but my dad finally convinced Corey's dad that the whole Starlitters thing was a bad shit insane. I mean, my dad had started the thing, so he was good at explaining the mechanics of it. Corey's dad started researching cults online, even as he kept my dad in the basement, because he wasn't sure at that point, and came across a couple that had made it out alive from a very nasty cult. The Browns, they were calling themselves now. So, Corey's dad got together with them, and they decided to start their own thing, called a new beginning. The idea was to rescue people from cults whenever that was possible, especially children, starting with me. They let my dad go, but didn't tell him their plan. They figured that it was too iffy to release me to my dad. After all, he had started the thing. So they kidnapped me on their own and brought me to Maine. They had studied the brainwashing techniques that they had used on them, and they were able to convince me that I was really the brown son. They declared a new beginning for me at a bonfire, with a bucket of home-brewed wine, wearing robes as a nod to the Eastern religions that had helped them cope with their own transitions back to normal life. <laughs>
Corey's dad was not really Corey's dad. He was also a rescue case from a cult in Oregon. New Beginning grew fast across the country. At first, it was people who had managed to escape cults themselves, and then it kept growing, as they rescued more and more adults. Adults had a choice to join the group or just move on. Kids who were too young to fend for themselves had no other safe options, were adopted and brainwashed into a new family. Meanwhile, the Starlighters were growing too, and offshoots were forming. That's how they finally found me. I'm pretty famous in the cult world. I guess there's a place on the dark web where they all get together, and my picture had been circulating for years. Somebody from my town in Maine had recognized me. They alerted the Dunlops privately, and meanwhile had their kid had spread all these rumors about me. That I had killed my real father, and that I was sending my adopted parents to jail. That I was crazy and dangerous, and because they were masters of manipulating people, everybody at school started to believe the rumors. Corey did it first too, but before he left for Florida... Corey's dad told Corey everything that I'm telling you now. Corey was supposed to keep totally quiet about it until I was safe, but he couldn't help but send a few texts letting me know that help was on the way. Meanwhile, my dad had been looking for me this whole time. He discovered the dark web group and followed it for years. When he saw that they had found me, he flew straight to Maine. But by the time the dark web group was talking about it in their chat room, it was already over. I was back in Florida with the Dunlops. So he turned right around and headed back to the airport. And that's where he ran into Corey's dad. Mad first, my dad was ready to kill Corey's dad right there in the airport. After all, the guy had kidnapped me without my dad's knowledge. So my dad had kind of a point. But he decided that rescuing me was more important than vengeance. And he knew that he couldn't do it alone. But that's what happened. My dad and members from the New Beginning got together and saved me from the Starlighters. As you can imagine, I'm pretty screwed up after all this. It's not really over. I don't think it will ever be over. My mother might still be out there. All of the offshoots of these Starlighters are still out there. How many, I don't know. But I know that it goes deep. And that we have to be careful about our next move. I'm on my way to see Corey right now. I can't say where. After that, we're going to try to get the Browns out of prison. But man, from what I've been hearing, you've got people at the federal level involved in this shit. Not many, but enough that you have to be really careful. So, I'm signing off now, guys. Don't worry about me. I've got my dad. And I'll be with my best friend pretty soon. For a minute there, you guys were my only friends, and I'll never forget that. And if I ever hear about any of you guys smelling some weird tea, well, I'll be there for you. In the forests of Canada lurks a monster. Our camping group became its prey. Written by Little Willy Willy 69. It was a beautiful fall morning, as we drove through the small towns and rural communities dotting Nova Scotia. We weren't locals to the area, but we had heard of some great camping areas in the vast forests around the province, and it was the first time our friend group got together for a trip in almost 10 years. 
So, we wanted to make it a good one. We had driven from the city to go on a camping trip. Seven of us in two vehicles. As we drove through the rural countryside, Dylan, the eldest of the group, spoke up. It's nothing like Toronto, is it, guys? We all agreed. It was nothing like Ontario, for that matter. The Nova Scotia countryside was breathtaking, full of personality and culture. As Matt May's tall trees blared over the radio, we were growing increasingly excited for the next few nights that we would spend in the woods. Richie was sitting in the back of my crew cab Silverado, sipping on a Molson Canadian and singing along to the radio. I hadn't seen him in such a good mood in years. He seemed to be finally getting over his divorce and enjoying himself for once. Richie and I were childhood friends. And after his wife left him, we were roommates in the city. We were like brothers. I had seen the man suffer so badly that it was good to see him smile. Dylan's girlfriend, Erica, was up front with me, sleeping with the seat slightly back. And Dylan sat in the back, drinking beers with Richie. Dylan was a skilled hiker and outdoorsman like myself, but Erica was not so much. This was only her second or third time in the deep woods, but she really loved it. Soon time for a piss break, Richie piped up. Maybe if you didn't start drinking beers before we even hit the highway, you wouldn't need to pee every five minutes. Dylan chuckled. Alright, whatever. Give the others a shout and tell them that we're pulling over at the next dirt road. I said. I needed to stretch my legs anyway. It was a long drive and my back was starting to hurt. We called the rest of the group and pulled over. As we pulled off onto a dirt road and piled out of the truck, the others came in close behind in their Jeep Wrangler. The door swung open and out came Marianne, Elizabeth, Robert. Marianne and Elizabeth were best friends. Even after all these years of knowing them, I couldn't believe how beautiful they were. They looked like two supermodels. Robert was from BC and we had only met him a couple years back. But he fit in with us so fast that it was like he was always there. How's everyone doing? Robert said with a large grin across his face. He was what you would call a hippie, and always brought a boatload of psychedelics on our camping trips. He lit up a large joint and began passing it around. I spoke up. We're good, man. Eric is still asleep in the truck. How are you guys? Great. He exclaimed, freaking great man. I could tell from the look on his face that he had already gotten into the sheet of blotter acid in his backpack. As the others chatted, I went with Richie to check the dump of the truck to make sure we had all our supplies. Two giant coolers were full of food and drink, fire starting gear, axes, knives, first aid kits, tools, a bear spray. It was all there. We glanced around to make sure no one could see us from the road and Richie and I pulled out the two guns that we had taken with us. An SKS rifle with around 60 rounds of ammunition, and a 12-gauge pump-action Mossberg with about 25 rounds of buckshot. The last time we had been camping, we had a close encounter with a bear and nothing to defend ourselves with, 
So this time, we made sure we did. You can never be too safe in the forest around here. When we checked the maps, we were getting close. Only another hour or so and we would be driving into the woods. And then it was a day's hike and we would be at our chosen campground. A decent sized clearing in the woods next to a freshwater lake. We had planned to stay for a couple of days and hike back out. We had plenty of supplies. The rest of the trip went by pretty fast and before we knew it, we were loading up our equipment and walking. We had spent most of the day hiking through the woods, stopping for smoke breaks and once to eat. I checked the GPS and we were getting nearer to our final destination. Some of the group had noticed things in the woods along the way. They looked like small native totems, dolls, carvings, odds and ends hanging from the trees. This must have been a native hunting ground or something we figured. And we left the totems and ornaments where we found them. As we came upon the clearing, the sun was just beginning to set. And we set up our camp and were preparing for the first night there. We had turned on some music on the battery-powered stereo that Dylan brought, cooked up a barbecue over an open fire, and started to really get into the beers. Robert pulled out the sheet of blotter acid and we all took a hit. We spent the rest of the evening and night sitting around the fire, listening to music, drinking and smoking and laughing like maniacs at the tricks the LSD played on our brains. Little did we know, all of the noise we were making attracted something. Something none of us had ever seen before. I retreated to my tent with Richie, Elizabeth, and Marianne, while the others went to Dylan's tent. Marianne and Elizabeth looked at me and Richie and Marianne said, I think I know a way to help you get over that ex-wife of yours, Rich. With a huge grin plastered across her face, Elizabeth came over to me and leaned close, and we started kissing. Richie and Marianne had done the same. Just as things were starting to heat up in the tent, we heard a scream from the other one. It sounded like Erica. The other tent was pegged up closer to the woods while we pegged up down to the lake, about 100 meters apart. Richie and I hopped up and both of our eyes fixated on the guns in the corner. We had them both. The other tent was supposed to have one. Crap. We grabbed the guns and told the girls to stay put, and we hastily loaded them while running towards the other tent. We heard Erica scream again, and by the time we got there, everyone was outside, and we all had our flashlights on. What's going on? What's wrong? I yelled. Erica was in tears near the tent, holding on to Dylan for dear life. She was muttering something about an animal in the woods. We finally managed to get her to calm down enough to tell us what was wrong. She stammered on. I, I got up to pee and when I did there was... It was behind the tree and it touched my shoulder. What was behind the tree, Erica? Dylan said firmly but calmly. I don't know, she yelled. It was tall and bony and it had really long claws. It was covered in blood. I pulled Robert aside. Man, how much acid did you give her? Uh, none, man. Robert said nervously. She didn't want any. Was she asleep before this? I asked. 
Yeah, I think so, Robert said. She must have been dreaming or something, man. Here, take the shotgun anyway. Calm her down, Anna. And then we heard it. Elizabeth and Marianne screamed, but it wasn't the same. It stopped abruptly. We knew right away something was wrong. A sense of terror washed over all of us. The adrenaline kicked in and Robert and I ran for the tent. But when we did it, it was torn to pieces. And when we looked inside, so were the girls. I felt something sour crawl up from my stomach and into my mouth as I looked upon the mangled women that were lying before us. Elizabeth was still alive and was begging me to help her. The helpless look on her eyes shot through me as I noticed both of her legs were missing and her insides were hanging out. Marianne was missing an arm in her head and was almost torn clean in two vertically. I turned and looked at Robert and all I could see was shock in his eyes. I turned around and I vomited. Robert couldn't look away. We yelled for the first aid kit and the rest of the group came running. We sat and held Elizabeth's hand as she begged us not to let her go. Erica, who was a registered nurse, ran up. But when she had seen the extent of the wounds, her hand shot over her mouth and she dropped the first aid kit. After a moment, she collected herself and began giving first aid while looking at the rest of us hopelessly. Within five minutes, Elizabeth was gone too. Richie began to yell through his tears. Crap, what the heck happened to them? We all began trying to talk over one another in a panicked confusion. Dylan hadn't said a word. Enough, he yelled and again louder. Enough. Everyone went silent. It, it looks like a bear maybe got into the tent. It's probably still around and we need to hunker down at the other tent and wait until daylight. It's our only hope. We had been checking our phones, but we had lost service hours ago. We were cut off. We took the rest of our supplies and ran back to the other tent. As we did, we heard a horrible screeching in the woods. It sounded almost human, but way too animalistic. Too loud and shrill. Oh man, it's a wendigo, Robert blurted out. My grandfather told me about them. They eat people in the woods and it's coming for us. Richie blurted out. It's a bear or something, man. It's not no urban legend. And if it comes anywhere near us, we're going to shoot it dead. He snatched the shotgun out of Robert's hand and walked over to light a fire. We'll be able to see it better if we get lots of light in the woods. Whatever it was, it was watching us, patiently waiting. We could hear it go back to the other tent and drag something out. The bodies. The poor girls. The woods grew eerily cold and quiet. We sat there around the fire with our guns trained in the woods. I had the SKS rifle in my hand, fully loaded, and Richie had the shotgun. It was moving around us and we could almost catch a glimpse with our flashlight, but it was much too fast. Branches snapped as the monsters stalked around us, growling and snarling. The rest of the crew pulled out the axes and knives and stayed behind us, with all of our backs to the lake. Silence. The silence went on for what felt like eternity. 
and then we heard it. Elizabeth's voice. Help me, please. Richie, Sam, Robert, somebody help me. It didn't sound natural. It sounded like her, but in a way, it didn't. This is impossible. We watched her die. Dylan yelled. How is she still alive? He took off for the woods in the direction of the voice. I couldn't grab him, and he ignored our pleas to come back. I'm going to get Elizabeth. She's still alive. Those were his final words. We shone our flashlights on him as he went past the tree line, and that's when we saw it. A large, pale, gray creature lunged forward. It had lifeless eyes, long mottled black and gray hair, and long slender claws which it dug into Dylan's flesh. It must have been eight feet tall at least. Its long, gnarled teeth showed as it screamed in Dylan's face before tearing into his throat. All we could do was watch on in horror. Dylan fell to his knees as the creature began ravaging him, tearing him to pieces. It looked like a large, emaciated humanoid, but it appeared to have incredible strength. Richie and I opened fire as soon as we realized Dylan was dead and there was a no saving him. The bullets tore through its flesh, but it did not react. Instead, it pulled Dylan's mangled corpse into the woods as it took off running, letting out loud screeches as it ran, breaking off the limbs of trees like toothpicks. Richie and I both emptied our weapons into the beast, and it didn't even phase it. Erica was crying hysterically. Richie and I reloaded as fast as we could. We heard a horrible crunching sound in the trees, like a dog eating a ham bone. We all looked at each other in shock and horror. It must have been getting close to daylight. The creature didn't seem to like light, as it would periodically throughout the night come and watch us, screech at us in the woods, but never come close to the firelight. It also fled from our flashlights. We all thought that as long as we kept the fire going, we would survive until daylight. If the creature fled from the sun, we would make our escape. And that's when it started to rain. We began throwing things under the fire frantically, trying to keep the light alive. But the fire grew more and more dull as the rain beat down harder. The creature was inching closer as the light died. It evaded our flashlights with incredible speed, and came almost within striking range. It was so close that I could smell it now, the smell of rotting flesh. I could see its black teeth and its rotting mouth, the veins standing out against its gray skin, the rotting flesh at the end of its claws, as it began grabbing at us, trying to pull us away. Richie and I opened fire directly at the monster, and it began to screech in pain and stumble backwards, only to regain its footing and lunge forward again. Just as we both emptied our magazines, Robert yelled, Get down! I looked over my shoulder and saw him brandishing a flare gun. Genius, it hates light. If we stick a flare in its flash, it might just flee. But Robert done even better than that. He fired a bright ball of white phosphorus directly into the monster's screechy mouth. It flailed around horrendously as the flare burned away inside its mouth. It gave Richie and me enough time to reload and begin firing on it again. We were on the last of our ammo now, 
If it didn't die, we were done for. Roberts loaded another flare and let it fly into the monster. This one stuck into its chest and it fell down. We swarmed it with whatever weapons we had left, and Richie and I opened fire until we had nothing left, while the rest of the group jumped on it with knives and axes. It let out its last awful squelch as Erica drove a large splitting axe into its head. We retreated back to the camp, watching the monster cautiously, fearing that it may jump back up and charge at any minute. We sat there, not saying a word until the sun came up. As the rain subsided and the sun cleared through, we immediately left the camp with everything left behind and made for our vehicles. By the time we had escaped the woods, we were completely exhausted, and as the shock subsided, we began to sob and try to make sense of what had happened in those woods. We decided that it would be best if we told everyone a grizzly bear had gotten our friends. Nobody would believe the true story anyway, and during the funerals, we vowed to never speak of it again. I don't speak to my old friends much these days. We mostly went our separate ways after the incident. The only one that I did speak to was Richie, but he took his own life about a year after it happened, with the very same shotgun he held his ground with on that dreadful night. And on nights where I can't drink the image out of my mind, it comes to me in my dreams, screeching rapidly, flailing, ready to kill. I went backpacking in a national park. I don't think that I'll ever go back. Written by Riggs195 My name is John, and I have always been an avid hiker and camper. Growing up, I was taught everything you needed to know to survive in the woods. My father taught me how to shoot, hunt, and plenty of bushcraft. Recently, I had gotten into backpacking and I really enjoyed it. I would try to go with friends, but most of the time, I ventured solo so I could go on my own pace. After graduating college, I decided to go backpacking at a national park that I had always wanted to go to. In these Sierras, none other than Yosemite. So, after telling family where I was going and getting everything I needed to survive out there for a few weeks, I made my way. It's about a 10 hour drive, but I eventually made it. And my God, was this place beautiful. After a few days of hiking, Everything went smoothly, and I even saw a few deer. Got some good fish, and was really enjoying the great outdoors. Things started getting weird after the first five days. Normally, the sound of bugs and little critters at night accompanied me. But there were moments where it was completely silent. Like absolutely no sound at all. What kind of spooked me was I would sometimes see weird lights in the distance. I thought they were other backpackers, but 
it didn't look like normal lights from flashlights. More like orbs or lights moving around. Another few days passed and I ran into another hiker. Her name was Sandy and she was a pretty girl, 22, just like me. We made small talk and she asked if she wanted to hike together since we were going the same route. I agreed. And we spent a few days hiking together, as a matter of fact. That night, during a campfire, I asked her if she saw any strange lights at night. And she said that she thought she did but took it as a distant backpacker. I didn't press on about it and just went on with the night. The next day, we went our separate ways. Since I decided I was going back to the lodge to stock up on supplies. I then made camp at the furthest campground near a family with a small child. This is where things got really, really weird. It was late. The family was going to bed, and I was hanging out by the campfire having myself a few beers. Later, the fire became basically embers. I didn't want to go to bed yet, so I was just sitting outside enjoying the peaceful sounds of the night. When suddenly, it went quiet again. That same eerie quietness as before. And then I saw some movement by the family's camp. I couldn't really tell due to distance and the dark, but I heard a zipper being undone. I made the decision to shine my flashlight near their campsite. Normally, this would be rude, but something didn't feel right, and I could have sworn that I saw a figure of something near their tent. It couldn't have been the parents since I saw them go to bed with their child when my fire was dying down. Once my light got near the figure, I saw something big, like a bear but it didn't look like a normal bear. And then as I moved the light right to the tent, it had the child in its arm and darted out of the campsite so fast, faster than anything that size could move. I was shot, but I got my composure together really quick and I blew my survival whistle. Ten lights began to turn on from nearby, and the family woke up, and what I could tell was a panic. Where is he? Referring to their child. I yelled that someone abducted him, and I joined them to go alert the park ranger. A search and rescue were immediately started. I don't know if they ever found the kid or not. All I did was give my side of the story, and once I was cleared, I went back to my travels. I mean, I was getting tired when this happened, so it could have been a bear. But the way that it had that kid in its arm, bears don't do that to people. I quickly left that area the following day, and though it was really hard for me, I hoped the best for the family. This next story really creeped me out, 
not to the point where I ended my trip, but really made me question if I should continue on. It was a late dusk. I was fishing near a river, hoping to get a few fish for dinner. Then, at the corner of my eye, I saw across the river those same lights in the sky, but they were closer this time. I gazed back towards the river, and I kid you not, I saw what appeared to be two figures walking near the fire pit I made. They were skinny, about seven feet tall, and had really big hands and were making some sort of clicking sound. I noped the heck out of there, and decided I would camp elsewhere that night. Safe to say, I didn't sleep much that night. This is the last story I have on my trip that pretty much sealed the deal for me. Out of all the weird things I saw, this I can't explain. I ran into Sandy by sheer luck. I asked her how she was, and if anything weird has happened since we went our separate ways. She said no, and was kind of worried about my question, and asked me what I meant by weird. I told her about the family with the missing child, and she had the face of someone who just heard their family member got cancer. I didn't mention the entities by the river, as I didn't want to frighten her. She said that her friend Emily had been backpacking and they were going to the top of some dome and asked if I wanted to join. I agreed, and we made our way to hike that day to the top of this dome peak. After a night of having a few drinks and good conversation, we all went to bed. In the middle of the night, I had to pee really bad, so I unzipped my tent. I got out and did my business, and right as I made my way back, I saw Emily just standing by the cliff looking out. I asked her what the heck she was doing, and it was so late. She didn't say anything, but I have to go. I told her, go where? It's late. You should really go to bed. And don't get too close to the edge. You're going to fall off. She only responded, I'm okay. Be back to bed soon. I found this whole conversation odd, but decided to just go back to bed. In the morning, I was awoken by Sandy. She was in a panicked tone and said, John, where is Emily? I said, She's not in her tent. Maybe she went to look at the view. She was out last night doing that. But when we looked, she wasn't there. We couldn't find any trace of her friend. We looked for an hour in the woods nearby, calling for her name, but there was no answer. We were about to call an SOS when we came back to our campsite and we saw Emily right by the same cliff that I saw her at last night. Sandy shouted, Emily, 
Where did you go? We thought we lost you. Emily didn't respond. She looked like she was in a trance and began making her way closer to the edge of the cliff. Sandy said in a concerned voice, Emily, what are you doing? Uh, get back here. You're going too close to the... Ready she was at the edge. She broke out of her trance and turned her head to Sandy and back to her feet in a look of confusion. Emily said, What? Why am I outside my tent? She took a step back and turned to make her way back to us. Sandy spoke. What are you talking about, Emily? But after Emily took that first step back to us, she... I can't explain it other than one moment she was making her initial step to go back to our campsite. And the next, she was flung straight into the air like a ragdoll by some unknown force. Emily screamed. Sandy screamed. Emily! I was in a state of shock, and then we heard a loud but distant thud. We didn't even bother to grab our gear. I just grabbed Sandy's hand and told her, We need to leave, now. Sandy was shot. Tears in her eyes, but I broke her out of her state of shock by telling her, Run! She managed to pull herself together, and we ran. We ran for what felt like hours, but eventually, we made it back to the lodge. The staff asked if everything was okay, and I just said, with barely any breath, Call the rangers! Our friend fell off a cliff! It's been a few days since then. Sandy and I spoke to the rangers and search and rescue personnel, and told them where Emily had fallen. At first, they thought that we could have had something to do with it, but given how far she fell off the cliff, or thrown, I should say, and us passing the polygraph test, we were cleared of suspicion. What was even more strange was the rangers immediately dropped their investigation and began to call in the FBI. The sheriff sat me down and asked me simply, Son, what really happened out there? I couldn't hold it in any longer. I told him what really happened, and when he asked Sandy if this was true, she agreed. The sheriff took a long sigh and said, Well, that's what I figured. No way anyone could have pushed her that far off the cliff, let alone other things we found. I said, what other things? He only replied with, That is none of your concern. The FBI will take over from here. I probably don't need to tell you this, but I highly advise you to call the rest of your trip off. We were let go and given a hotel for the night to stay at to gather our composure. But before leaving... I spoke to a search and rescue officer, 
and I asked them if they found Emily. He said they did, but it was strange. Having fallen off the cliff, one would think that they would find her body in such a way that it was clear they died from the fall. But he said they found her body, but that her eyes and tongue were completely gone. That's all that I could get out of him. The following day, Sandy and I exchanged contact info and went our separate ways. Before we left, she grabbed my hand and said, I'm really glad that I met you, John, and I'm sorry our trip had to end this way, but I'm glad we made it out alive. I won't forget you. Please be safe. She gave me a hug, kissed my cheek, and got in her car, and drove off. Since then, I've been doing a lot of reading on missing person cases, primarily missing 411, and realized that there is a huge surge of missing people in this national park, as well as others. The incident with Emily is very similar to a few cases that I have come across. I do still hike and backpack. Sometimes, Sandy joins me too. Though even with my new perspective and safety measures, the way Emily was flung off that cliff in Yosemite, I don't think I will ever go back.